Hey, this is Mark Webb, uh, the director of The Amazing Spider-Man. I'm here to do the commentary for The Amazing Spider-Man Blu-ray DVD craziness. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Avi Arad, one of the producers. And I am Matt Tolmack, and I am one of the other producers of The Amazing Spider-Man. My involvement with The Amazing Spider-Man started off with uh, some conversations with Matt Tolmack over at the studio, and I had just finished 500 Days of Summer, and... and uh, you know, we started talking about Peter Parker, and I had some specific opinions about how I saw the character, and gradually those conversations emerged into me getting the job. I didn't even know there was a job initially. Everything in the film um, emerges from a single event in Peter Parker's life, and that is when Peter Parker gets left behind by his parents. Uh, it's a very big moment in terms of how it defines his character, but also how the story unfolds. And what we see here is Peter Parker played, playing hide-and-go-seek with his dad. And that's really right here, the heart and soul of the movie is this little boy. You have to get lucky sometimes, right? This kid, he was so wonderful, such a magical face. And this whole idea that you start the movie with a little boy looking for something, which is what the whole movie becomes about. A couple of years ago, I had had uh, lunch with Mike Nichols, who had seen 500 Days of Summer and was a, was very kind enough to, to take me to lunch in New York one day. And um, he has said something that, I, that always stuck with me. He's like, opening, the opening of a movie should be a metaphor for the movie itself. And I took that to heart. And this scene is uh, a demonstration of that. This scene is Peter Parker looking for his father. And in a very real way this movie is a about a kid who goes out looking for his father and finds himself and here he is coming into his dad's office and his life will never be the same ah uh, something is wrong mm -hmm. this is a scene that we had conceived of very early on um and i this uh, set is one of my favorite sets from the movie done by John Michael Riva, who unfortunately is no longer with us. Here comes Campbell Scott, one of my favorites. I loved him in singles. Now he's old enough to be somebody's dad. I love that. Um, now there's, uh, when, when Richard Parker leaves, here we get this uh, drawer. I like that. How's that for commentary? I like drawer. There's the double zeros. The double zeros are going to play a big, important role in the movie. Um, the double zeros were, I think, uh, we pulled that from some of the ultimate Spider-Mans where Jamie Vanderbilt had had seen that early on. Um, I love this moment where uh, where Campbell erases the board. That that's something that he he came up with. I really thought that was a cool a cool bit. What this establishes basically is this movie starts in high tension situation, danger for the family. That's right. And kind of explains the, the need of the parents to get away, and then it creates this big question mark. There's so many parts of the story that we've seen before. Spider-Man, unlike, say, Harry Potter, Harry Potter is a closed canon. Spider-Man is, you have 50 years worth of, of comics. I felt it was really important, and this is, I think, probably a little controversial. The way I saw the character, I needed the audience to experience what Peter Parker experienced. I wanted them to empathize with him. And even though we've seen the origin of Spider-Man, we haven't seen the origin of Peter Parker. And I was curious about that. I was really curious about what happened to this kid. And, and 
anybody that gets left behind by their parents at such a young age is going to have a huge emotional impact. And that was somewhere I, I felt it was really important to start. And all of the the things in his life, the spider bite, Uncle Ben's death, all of these things emerged from him trying to rediscover his past, to rediscover himself when he finds that briefcase later on in the film. And I felt like I had to to walk through those beats because they were they were the context of those iconic beats were very different than what we'd seen before. And I think Andrew's performance is different. I think the the nature of Peter Parker is different than than what had been done before. And I felt it was really important to to cleanse the palette, as it were. And it was it was a pretty quick reboot. I'll I'll admit that, but I felt like Spider-Man is a perennial character, and he's somebody that belongs on screen. I thought there was enough worthwhile material that justified rediscovering this character in that way. Yes, sir. You want to keep that skateboard? Yeah. Keep it off the ground. Wheels up. Like that. That's it. Okay. This was fun to shoot. These two people, I think, met on set and are still dating. And here is the magnificent and talented and amazing and wonderful Emma Stone. I kind of went back and forth about introducing her here or introducing her in the in the fight that's that's coming up, but I decided to keep her in there just because she looks so good. Now this scene, we had a longer version of this scene where Peter Parker gives us sort of uh, a speech trying to rally the kids and he fails and it just was, ended up being a little bit too long I think and and Andrew was great at it but there was something a little bit too self-actualized about his character at that moment to, to justify it so we, we ended up cutting it out and just making it a quick uh, a quicker scene I love the, the the look he gives Flash here and he says you know I'm, I'm still not taking the picture it's kind of the the, the cool hand Luke version of Peter Parker yeah. that he's not he's not going to bow to bullies he's not going to bow to pressure this is Chris Zilka who I loved he was I think played Flash with such so many great nuances I think he's going to be a, a big star if he wants it he's he's a really really great guy really great actor and then here is the very assertive Gwen Stacy which I think is a new kind of love interest for Peter Parker um, she's smart she's sassy as they say Obviously, incredibly beautiful Emma Stone, but she's in charge. I like that. I like that powerful quality of her. The fact that she can stand up to to bullies as well. I think she admires his heroic impulse and is interested in this outsider kid. There's the camera, important piece of iconography for Peter Parker. If you look at how Andrew is moving right here, his see how he's always wobbling around and he's always sort of twitchy and nodding he was creating a, a dynamic for the character if you look at the end of the movie on the scene of the porch he's very still and at the beginning of the movie he's flopping around he's not quite comfortable in his skin and by the end of the movie he's incredibly still and focused it's a kind of physical acting that's pretty sophisticated and, and requires uh, I think a lot of forethought and foresight and Andrew's kind of a master craftsman of, of acting and I think people are going to start or have started to realize just how good he is. This is a great scene. The real first connection of Gwen and Peter. I'm making spaghetti and meatballs tonight. Here's Sally Field, the lovely, inimitable Sally Field. It was so much fun to work with her. She was finishing her brothers and sisters 
TV show at this time and her work week she only worked for I don't know 10 days in the movie but her work week was insane here comes Martin Sheen what did I do right in a past life to work with these guys they were so great the bowling trophies this this scene was uh, written up by uh, Steve Clovis and I think I love Andrew I love I love everybody in the scene it's a very simple introduction but I like what's great about Spider-Man are these sort of very relatable domestic moments and Peter Parker is not an alien he's not a billionaire he's just this kid and and that's this is a, a dramatization of that and here we get a little bit of an understanding of Peter's smarts he's talking about you know you can see that Ben has relied on Peter to you know to fix things around the house uh, Peter is a tinkerer he's an engineer he's got that technological spirit that uh, I think he inherited from his father. We always imagine Uncle Ben as, uh, you know, he worked on bridges. There was a scene that we had cut out of the movie where we were a little bit more explicit about that. But Uncle Ben's history with his brother is, we get this idea that, that Ben was a little bit older, um, kind of protected Richard as Richard was growing up, probably gave him opportunity, helped create opportunities for Richard that he wouldn't normally have had. I, I like the idea of them being from, a, you know, a blue collar background. But Uncle Ben is, is you know, uh, maybe a little bit simpler in his approach to life and a little bit more of a, a working with his hands, a blue-collar worker, whereas Richard was a very sophisticated, gifted scientist. That's an uh-oh moment. Watch Aunt May and watch Ben. The past has come back to haunt them. All they've wanted to do is protect this kid. Something's wrong. They're concerned, and... I like this. They're kind of, they're not telling Peter the whole truth here. And you can see that in their body language. And I love how Martin is playing this. He's trying to, trying to comfort the boy, kind of trying to distract him. And Peter's not totally buying it. There's some suspicion there. And there's a, a little fracture. And May is great in this scene too. Sally is just fantastic. She's trying to care for him. But there's this tension between Peter and May. And, and in the comics, there's a, this sort of, May is this, angelic figure and and so sweet i like the idea of injecting some tension into that relationship because i wanted to give them some place to go it's clear that i feel like it's clear that ben and, and peter had a uh, had more of a, a relationship than may and peter did and of course may and peter have to get over that in order to continue on as a family and what we know here is that that's something that peter in his mind was looking for since the night they left. That's right. And this loving couple were able to keep him out of it. It's over now. Yeah, again, No stopping. The end of innocence and the beginning of the quest. There's the glasses. I love this moment where he looks at the mirror. He sort of holds out his hand. This is a, look at that boom. That's just a great moment. He's so good. He's such a great physical actor, Andrew. Where are you going? Oscorp is, in this movie, the place from which all crazy things emerge. I looked at it as the Tower of Babel, as sort of an obsidian spire and a testament to the hubris and vanity of, of, of man's ambition. And it's a place where, you know, ethics kind of stop at the door. And everything in the Oscorp building was designed to extend Norman Osborne's life. Norman Osborne is, um, is a ticking clock. He's, he's very ill. Uh, all the power in Oscorp has been there to extend his life or 
to finance crazy scientific research that might help him live longer. If you recall, when his father is taking this thing, it was hidden in a drawer. That's why they couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. So if you remember this moment when he opens it, you know that this file is of utmost importance. That's right. What is this? Here's the decay rate algorithm, which went through various stages of development during the movie. And then yeah, here's another sec. little dramatization of Peter's crafting engineering abilities. He opens up the door with his little remote control piece. I really like that idea. Here comes Martin Sheen. I like shooting this scene. That was a real sweet uh, moment of connection between Peter Parker and Uncle Ben. Sits down, grabs that Rubik's Cube. The Rubik's Cube used to be part of um, another story. There was, uh, you know, Peter, we actually shot this where, you know, Peter's dad gave Peter the Rubik's Cube and we ended up cutting that out at the beginning of the movie. But there was a sort of an indicator of, the Rubik's cube was a symbol, and we never really paid it off, so I didn't really, I didn't want to set it up and distract people with it. But it's a subtle acknowledgement of Peter's abilities, and you know, I love Rubik's cubes. The hardest decision you make when you're making a Spider-Man movie is who's going to be Peter Parker, because it's the heart and soul of the movie, and it's 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 the person you will either invest in and and go with or or not and so you know the, the the bar was incredibly high here was this this young actor that we knew from you know some of his early work and certainly social network who when he auditioned just literally embodied peter and the conscience and the, the hunger and the wisdom and the wit of this kid we also knew that he loved Spider-Man. It's, it's almost like a dream come true. And it was very cute. He sent us a picture when he was three years old in a, a Spider-Man costume. Now, that's hard to make up. He now maintains that his father sent it to us. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's what he said. When I think about nerds, nerds are, are a little bit more of a archetype. And I think what Peter Parker was to me, he's more of an outsider you know, which is an age-old kind of character in literature. Sometimes you look at, like, Dickens. You look at Great Expectations or Oliver Twist. And uh, Pip, for example, in Great Expectations, is you know, grew up without parents. And there's this generosity of spirit that you really like. But he's also abandoned. He's lost. He's a little bit on the outside looking in. And that's to me, was the, the important DNA of the character. Not so much that he's a nerd. I mean, he's a, he's a scientific genius, obviously. But... I didn't think of him as a super nerd. Anybody who's seen The Social Network knows that nerds are now running the universe. So it's just a little bit of a different dynamic. I wanted to create somebody who is just more uncomfortable in his skin. And I keep on using the term outsider because that's what that's just how I think of him. And Andrew's a he's not dorky. He's he's just, as I said, uncomfortable in his skin. I like that dynamic. It felt a little bit more realistic to me. This was done by Blur. The Oscorp uh, logo there. I like that. Gwen Stacy in the comics, of course, you know, worked at, at a laboratory. She's had this scientific capabilities just like Peter Parker. I like the idea that Gwen Stacy is as smart, if not a little bit smarter than than Peter Parker. It gives them a, a, good, uh, a good dynamic. Part of the 
casting process. This one ended up with decision day, and everybody's in love with the same girl. That's right. She's, how do you not love this girl? Just this girl, Emma. She wanted to play this character. She loved this character. You know, we'd worked with her on Superbad and Zombieland and, and is, is how I had met her. And you immediately fell in love with her. There was so much talk about the color of her the hair. The problem with hair was that she's actually a natural blonde. But, had, but everybody thought she was a redhead. She was a redhead. So, so in the universe of Spider-Man, redhead equals MJ. And people made a lot of noise. Ooh, it uh, was our fan club. That's right. That we're going crazy. But she's a redhead. She's Mary Jane. And here we have the wonderful Risa Fons playing Dr. Kirk Connors. Reese is, is, I think, an actor that is underrated. He's so fantastic and so great and can do so many things. And, and I love seeing him playing a more sophisticated sort of scientific role. And if you've seen him in Anonymous, um, which not enough people have seen, he is extraordinary. In his audition, thought he was so magnificent. I mean, it was really incredible. It's a scene that eventually got cut out of the movie, but his audition for it was just some some incredible, incredible acting. This is also a great tete-a-tete, a great beginning to the chemistry of, of Peter and Gwen here. And you can see Reese is struck by this kid who comes in and has all this knowledge and... and these zooms we added in in post to try to connect them in a deeper way. You know, you can sense a bond, you can sense a connection between these two kids. And then I like <laughs> Emma's kind of uh, trying to cover for Peter there. Um, we experimented with a lot of different placements of these scenes. You know, originally, the scene with Irfan, with Dr. Rafa and, and Reese was switched around so it was earlier. But uh, but we kind of kept on playing around with it until we it settled in this this particular order here. Uh, Blur did the Tree of Life here, which I think works really well in 3D. Here, Gwen is busting, busting Peter. And then there's Risa Fonts. Yeah. Who uh, some people remember as uh, the roommate in Notting Hill. Mr. Underwear. Was the, exactly right. It was the first time we saw him in his underwear. Um, and we had worked with him on a, on a movie called Anonymous, um, where he played the, sort of as the movie would, would have it, uh, the actual author of Shakespeare's body of work. And he's just a spectacular actor, very Shakespearean. And a spectacular guy. Amazing guy. He became such a part and of our again, family. And had, again, we had an incredible array of actors because playing a villain in right. these movies is is really too much fun. And they're not just villains. That's what's so great. And that's yeah, why exactly. you have to have a great actor because they're tragic characters. You know, there's this humanity to them that is the other side of their villainy. So we flew him in from Spain. Yeah. And he landed and walked into the audition, seriously. So Reese walks in literally off... I don't know, two or three planes getting to L.A. Well, he lives in... In, in Mallorca. Mallorca. And he has this crumble page in his right. hand. Right, right, right. And proceeded to do the scene. And wow, when he was done with this scene, it's quite an emotional uh, moment. 
he was shaking for a while. Yep. He was like, he was in a trance. He channeled something. Exactly. And, and we just, okay. And that's how we and got him. Yeah. And it's been a great ride with him. So what we have here is uh, uh, another feat of John Michael Riva, the great John Michael Riva, the, the spider room that's coming up here. You know, this is a non-dialogue scene, and, and one of the things I like to do, and one of the things Andrew had requested was um, to play music during the scene. And, and this during the scene, we played uh, Pure Imagination by uh, from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is a Andrew Garfield request. And it helps, I think... It helps actors get into the mood, but it also sets the mood for the camera work for everybody. And even when I'm in editing, you remember that feeling that you had when you were when you were walking around and and um, and shooting in that set. And this is, I think, a really beautiful set. I think it worked really particularly well in 3D. And part of those those gadgets on the top were in the computer, and all the webs were CG. So we shot on the day all the spiders there was just the lattice work and and all the the spiders and the the webs were created in cg later there this is a web harvester this is to me in terms of the oscorp world this is where they harvest the webs which they make the webbing the the webs that he uses for his web shooters uh, and then there's a little radioactive spark that shocks the spider now the genesis of the spider i'm going to leave open there's different interpretations of that, and there's uh, I think I like I invite people's scrutiny, but I'm not going to go too deep into where those spiders came from just yet. We received the results from the NRA. How we got Mark, Mark Webb? Yeah. How did we get Our director? Mark? Yeah. Mark had made this movie 500 Days of Summer, which we loved a lot, and I had a general meeting with him, and was just talking about movies and different things. And Matt, Matt then was still president of Sony. Correct. And uh, I brought up Spider-Man because that was. The first, second, third, fourth, and fifth thought of every of every day. We need, we wanted to figure out how, who was going to make this movie for us. And his eyes lit up, and I said, "Hold, hold that thought." And I literally stepped out of my office and called you. Yeah. And said, "Just come over here. No explanation, like a little mystery." He was and, the president. I ran yeah, over. Yeah. You wouldn't fast do that anymore. But back in the day, people yeah. used to respond to me that way. And. Uh, <laughs> And you came over, and uh, and uh, and we started interrogating Mark and talking yeah. to him about this character. And uh, when you see a director working through the casting process, you can you can really start to understand his process. And you saw that he was very comfortable. Yeah, and you saw that he loved actors, and that and that exactly. was his specialty was talking to actors and performance is what he cared about. And you chose well, Komosabe. You and me both, baby. Okay, so the subway sequence was something we spent a lot of time rehearsing this. It's an action sequence, but it's one of these, it's an example of an action sequence that I wanted to do in camera. And so it was really important to, to just do a lot of rehearsals. And Andrew was everywhere in this scene. Um, he did basically all the stunts with maybe one or two exceptions. Um, but I I'm a big fan of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and all those, that, that sort of physical comedy. And, and I think action movies are really the only place nowadays where physical comedy um, can play out in a way that's kind of funny. Uh, you don't, you know. Otherwise, it's you know somebody falling in a manhole or something like that. It's not quite as clever as it as it was. I'm, and this is my homage to that that old school Chaplin uh, kind of scene. Now, I, I hope you don't think I'm having delusions of grandeur. Chaplin is and, and Keaton are the, the best of the best. But this was at least my model 
Um, and I like the idea of how he's apologizing all the way through the scene, sort of shocked by his powers. But, you know, there you go. I think Andrew is overwhelmed here. It's great. It's fantastic uh, uh, sweetness to his behavior. And, you know, all these guys are stunt guys, and it was tricky to find a... Uh, I wanted to... I, I didn't want them to be ruffians, and I just imagined, well, what, how, can I, how can I disguise a bunch of big stunt guys uh, that are worthy adversaries and sort of mildly threatening without them feeling like, you know, leather-clad thugs? Uh, and I thought them, you know, I thought a, a series of, of drunken sport enthusiasts, footballers, seemed like, uh, seemed like it would fit the bill. Next final stop, Coney Island. goes running back from Coney Island it was so interesting to stand up on the train trucks at I don't know one o'clock in the morning that's what it was, it was. Yeah. yeah have him run down the street yeah it's very glamorous business you know you you work in the rain <laughs> that's right in a cold you don't sleep but um, afterwards you talk about it romantically exactly on to the meatloaf scene. This is a scene written by Alvin Sargent, uh, the love of my life. He uh, he captured something here that was really fantastic. Now this was, um, that was actually not a real fly. Spoiler alert. Um, no fl no fly, well it was, a, it was a thing. We didn't want to harm any flies. I'm an animal lover, as are you. That's why we are not eating the fly. Otherwise, it would have been fun to eat that's the right. fly. And that's vegetarian uh, meatloaf. Uh, <laughs> this was a great scene to watch. And this is, again, this is the sort of physical dexterity of, of, of Andrew. Watch what he does here when he piles all this stuff on from the fridge. It's, it, this, this was just him and Mark having fun. I loved this here. That actually, you know, that's one of those moments. That just fell and he caught it. And it, it just creates magic. I noticed that. That's that's one of the best moments. Meatloaf. Nobody likes your meatloaf. How many meatloafs have I made for you? Oh, he's in a doghouse now. That's right. And here, you know, we had uh, we wanted to make the discovery of of having bitten by the spider uh, very different. And, and more, in a way, more visceral uh, by keeping the spider on him and this moment. It's sometimes even hard to watch, but painful. this is what the spider bite will look like if you get a good one. Yeah. And a realization. First time you realize, whoa. Uh, and you introduce to the, the old mighty web Nasty. Uh, and if you nasty look at his burger. face, it's just, he'll always be curious first. His love for science, his curiosity. This is great. This is just stumbling through this new surge of power that he has. Happens to me after I work out. Yeah, you're very strong this way. Well, like, yeah. An hour, but then it fades. <laughs> You've destroyed a lot of bathrooms. Exactly. We love this moment when he finally understands. So yeah, he's beginning he's to harness the powers. Really. And I love this. This is a little bit of uh, 
Spider sense. Yes. Heightened sense, heightened hearing. As far as Sally Fields and Martin Sheen, it was interesting. There was not a conversation about anybody else. No. It was, it was so clear. We were the two. That if we can get her, this amazing actress. They're two incredible icons who I and always him. felt like this is the family I would, I, would, I would design if my life was in a movie. And we also knew that they're so well beloved so in addition to the, of course, amazing acting and the way yeah. their roles are... It just feels written, like home. It just, when you see the two of them, you, you just, you just love them and you That's understand right. why Peter was so respectful of their love instead of questioning and questioning. And that's, right. that's why it was so shocking, the moment of discovery. That's right. Uh, but it just, it was like masterclass when the three of them were working together. That was brilliant. It was like watching theater. Yeah. It was like it was uh, mind-numbing. And late hours. Just. I always love this. He's just matter-of-factly doing his homework up on the roof. Mm, um, I'm doing... Um, um, and here he is again on the trail. You saw the double, double zero. That's a, it's an awesome moment. You don't remember me, I, uh... You're the intern from the other day. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. I'm sure you're a very nice young man, but this is a home. I'm asking to make an appointment in my office. I'm Richard Parker's son. And there it is. Yeah. There are all these moments in the movie where the past sort of knocks on the door. And that, that was Connors being, you know, with a certain wall up. He's a professional. And then he hears the name Richard Parker. And it all that, that was a great little addition here of catching the cup. It's great. Try it at home. You see if you can do yeah, that. Break a lot of cups. Like uh, <laughs> you'll break a lot of cups. Something, you know. So you, you really think it's possible across species genetics? Yes, of course. But for years, your father and I were. This is like an amazing, uh, amazing moment of trying to read each other. I'm sure that. Dr. Connors are thinking, why is he here? And Peter is thinking, what do you know? And Peter's also in awe of this guy. Exactly. He's, this, he's a connection to his father. Instant, instant connection. Yeah. The father and, don't forget, he loves science. science. You love science. We shot this at a very beautiful architectural house in the valley. It was... Uh, I forget who owned this house, but it was we were there for a couple of days. It was beautiful, right near the 101. It's uh, this is the first time that Peter realizes that he's not the only one who is kind of bombed by where is my father, and maybe even a little angry. Right. Um, no, he finds a, an ally here. Exactly. You know, Connors, he say, you know, I was. Both of them are stuck trying to figure out exactly what was it all about, where did he go. A very if, strong common denominator. Yeah. Take over. What could the side effects be? And I remember, and Peter, yeah. do you remember after surgery when we had to take off his arm? Yeah. He was so, he was a good sport about it. 
it's, it's again, it's mind, uh, major commitment to the part. Yeah. So, so some actors said they wouldn't actually remove their arm. Can I, uh, actually, Reese was game. A music editor, a nice weird guy, uh, through most of the production, most of the post. He wore a green sleeve. Is was wearing a green sleeve, which is actually and a white coat. Which is actually how we shot Connor's uh -huh. arm. Through in in these scenes when we were there, his arm actually yeah. was still there, and he was wearing a green sleeve over it that that became known as Kermit. Exactly. Because of its its yeah, yeah. resemblance to Kermit the Frog. And it was uh and then we subsequently obviously removed it. And and that's how you get which the what you get here. So this is Peter offering up that sacred information yeah. that he discovered in his father's briefcase. And now, it's the this beginning is the of power the power of CGI. Yeah. You see, the stub looks so real. It's another scene with Chris Zilka, AKA Flash. Um, this is just a way, it was a way to dramatize that Peter was getting a little surly with his powers. He's starting to get command and control and a way for him to, to best the bully. There's Missy Callenbach. Matt Tomek and I are, are gonna do a spin off with Missy. Missy and Flash here. Well, they're gonna, I don't know, maybe it'll be a half hour single gamer comedy. We'll figure it out. It's a pretty simple scene, but there's, you know, I loved all the little, the little nuances of it. Give it up, Parker. It's really about Peter discovering his, taking control of his powers and understanding just uh, how One useful sec. they can be to humiliate others. I like his look. I like his sort of threatening looks to, to Chris Zilka here and his, his footwork and the, his basketball work. This is all stuff that Andrew conjured up a few days before shooting. And when we rehearsed it, he was had a really great uh, knack for for how Peter Parker would be a trickster. One of the big things that Andrew was interested in is dramatizing the trickster quality of Peter Parker. And that's something that, that was a real important access point to him. It's also some way to, like in the comics, I just loved that, always loved that humorous component to, to Peter Parker and to Spider-Man, that, that crafty, clever, funny, adolescent quality that, that is so much fun to play. And it's easy to render in the comics. I think it's more, it's trickier to, to pay that off in a realistic kind of way in, in this universe. But Andrew is just has a, has a great knack for it. Boom, here it goes. This is awesome from one of the ultimates, uh, the backboard smash. Uh, boom, there we go. And I love this look, spaced. And the scene coming up here, I think is a really important scene. And, and it's something that we use a lot in our promotional materials. It's that great moment of awkward emerging love that these two characters Peter and Gwen are, are starting to get connected in a very special way. And it's, again, it's an event that you, we've all gone through, you know, asking the girl out. And there's so much nervousness and so much to play there. And I, I'm really proud of this scene because it's something that, in a movie that's this big and has this many effects, you, you there's a lot of pressure to just keep driving through and make, uh, and to, you know, stick to the lines and, and be really rigid. But, 
this is an example, I think, of a sort of spontaneity and a looseness in the acting that makes the scene really emotional and very real and very grounded and very sweet and innocent. And that's what I think makes Peter Parker so great is this, this like as I said before, he's not a millionaire, he's not an alien, he's just a kid. And this is one of those scenes you just, you know, wanted to create very realistic, grounded situations for Peter Parker. And this is something, this is a place that we've all been in. We're all nervous and here's this girl, but there's this attraction between the two of them and it's, I think it's probably some of the best best uh, on-screen chemistry I've seen in a really long time. And this is a, a Pietro Scalia was uh, you know this while we were while we were editing he put the scene together and walked it over to me on set and uh, what can I say it made my heart beat faster it was a pretty great pretty great moment to see this I felt like we had found something we had discovered something pretty special in in uh, Peter and Gwen here. The way he looks and the way he skips away is uh, is something, you know, he's dramatizing that emotion that we all feel, that moment, the moment uh, where life seems to be looking up. Of course, for Peter Parker, as we know, tragedy is always nipping at his heels. He's never happy for too long. And this skateboarding sequence is something that, we did actually after the main uh, body of photography, we were trying to figure out ways to, to for Peter Parker to have more fun. And Andrew had done a movie with Spike Jones, and, and you know, he hooked me up with Spike, and, and Spike hooked me up with some people from Girl Skateboards, and we sat around with Johannes Gamble and, and, and Rick and these guys from, from Girl, and, and we, uh, we dreamt up this sequence, and... and it was just a way. It was just a way to, to dramatize that feeling of effortlessness, that feeling of, that wish fulfillment, that that joy of, the thrill that's emerging from that moment with Gwen. You know, he feels like he's on top of the world, and I just love the sweet little uh, diversion, um, that, that this moment provides. This skateboarding stuff. It's like, what would you do if you were a kid? And you suddenly develop these powers. I mean, and you and you like skateboarding. It just made sense. It made this uh, made this little sequence of fun. I think again, grounded little dramatization or way to dramatize that that sweetness. Great close-ups. Andrew gives great close-ups. What can I say? It's a rare and beautiful and amazing talent. Here's our Coldplay song. Mark had put this in the very, very earliest assemblage. We call it temp music. That's right. Can you explain the temp music? Temp. When you're when you're assembling a movie uh, and you're you're working on the edit, directors oftentimes use music uh, that won't end up in the movie, uh, either because the movie ultimately will be scored, uh, or songs are not affordable, or maybe they're not the right choice. But it's it's. It's what the director puts in the movie for the first view. It represents his, the Feeling way he feels, the tone. what is the tone, the That's mood. Right. But it very, uh, very often changes. This song was in from the very beginning. Frankly, this song was in before there was a cut of the movie. We shot that in San Pedro in a, in a, in a, a shipping uh, company. It was magnificent out there. It was, uh, I think what was memorable, it was the first time that we really had to understand how to use 3D. That's right. 
That's right. And actually, I remember Michael designed this giant propeller. Yeah. To create depth. Right. right. That's right. Um, That's exactly right. And he lowered the ceiling so we have depth. Yeah. Um, but it was a slow day. Actually, we ended up going back there. We did go back and we almost actually. Almost at the end of the movie. Right. To shoot the skateboard. Yeah. Because we Initially, were, we had shot just the swinging on the chains and the climbing up of that structure. And then Mark wanted, and, and Andrew very definitely wanted to to make more of a meal Finish out of it. Finish it, yeah. Um, and the idea that Peter is coming out of this scene with this girl and he's feeling optimism. He's connected with Connors. He, he, he has a, there's a girl that he likes who likes him. He's got this power. And it's just a moment to himself where he can sort of express himself before you go back to the story. For us, it was really exciting for the first time to see in real time the 3D impact. Yeah. But everybody had to, the technicians, uh, the, the videographers, the DP, uh, everybody had to kind of get their head together to figure out uh, how it all worked together. How it all yeah. works together. Yeah, and no, it was an education in real time for very everybody. Very ambitious on second day of filming to go right into this absolutely brand new cameras, brand yeah. new technology. We were the first movie to, to actually use this technology. So uh, it was Mouse, really exciting. Mouse was not hurt. Mouse was not hurt. Just keeping my PETA membership yeah, yeah. current. Oh, when the cat came in, it was very dangerous. Yeah, very, upsetting. Very, very upsetting. Very upsetting. Uh, <laughs> uh, Some of these skate moves, uh, just for what it's worth, that, that was actually Andrew. Um, he's a pretty good boarder himself. You owe your aunt an apology. Big time. That's a tough moment. I wonder if the audience could guess where it was going. Here? Sitting in a movie house. In this moment? Yeah. You have to apologize to me. It's your Hell, he doesn't. Look, I'm sorry, Uncle Ben. I uh, got distracted. This oh, you got distracted. I always loved the way this was constructed. The the phone call from Ben. You know, the scene really begins back in the hallway with Gwen, and he says to Peter, "You're gonna have to pick up your aunt." It actually begins in the basketball scene, yeah. because Peter acts the way he does, and and in some in some sense, you could say he abuses his power. It means he's gonna have to. Uncle Ben has to come and and bail him out which means that Peter's going to have to go and pick up Aunt May. And, of course, he he's, he gets caught up with Dr. Connors. And which is top of mind for him right. from, from that day on. Because that's connection to his father and exactly. his past. So he ignores the call from Ben reminding him to pick up May, which brings us to this scene, all of which is going to lead inevitably to the death of Uncle Ben. And it was a very elaborately sort of constructed series of events, which Peter is responsible for on every level. Where are you going? Peter, come back here, please. It's also a very clear connection uh, between Aunt May and Uncle Ben. You see how much he loves her, yeah. he cares for her. They, they both love Peter like their own son, but but their relationship is so strong, which is so important to embellish 
because the loss of Uncle Ben for her is going to define kind of her future hangover. in so many ways. That's right. And this is the most beautiful shot coming up. Remember when we shot this? This oh, was yeah. in Queens, and this is the same subway platform that we exactly. were that we shot from when we had the overhead shot of Peter running away. This was at the foot of it. So Uncle Ben's death is one of the scenes that we actually reshot. Originally, there's a little bit more of a mistaken identity where Uncle Ben goes down an alleyway and gets shot, and it was a little bit confusing. I didn't think I shot it particularly well. Um, the performances were great, but I don't think I really nailed it. And I wanted, and the second time around, I wanted Uncle Ben to be a little more heroic. So we had him try to stop the killer, and I think that put, it made it more, the dramatic irony, I think, was heightened in this new situation where Uncle Ben tries to stop the killer, and um, by virtue of the effort that Spider-Man should have made, or that Peter Parker should have made, he has to pay a price. And that, of course, is the specter that haunts Peter Parker. Marvel was very protective of Uncle Ben's death and, and how that impacts Peter. That was one of the very basic elements in terms of the Spider-Man canon that we were legally obliged to, and rightfully so, because it's really, it's sort of a crucial development uh, moment for, for Peter Parker and his understanding of the responsibility. And it's just, in, in this situation, I wanted to extend the moment where he was hunting for Uncle Ben's killer. Um, because it's, I think there's a lot to explore in the, the darker motivations of, of Peter Parker. And here we have him coming on, discovering Uncle Ben's uh, body. And, and Andrew was sort of exploding on the inside here. It was really, really a tough scene to shoot. Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben, call an ambulance! It's Someone hard to kill an Martin Sheen, and it's hard, it's harder still to kill him twice. He's asked me if this could be a dream sequence so he can return in the second movie. Uh, we'll see how that'll, we'll see what Marvel thinks about that. You know, one of the things about this movie that it's, uh, it's, it's not about selling tickets is there's so many great moments about these various characters that you really have to see it twice, three times to catch all these various moments and what do they mean structurally? Right. Uh, and how do we see, how do we remember now Uncle Ben? That's right. Uh, he's a hero of his own kind. He's the hero in the street. Yeah. Which will resonate with Peter, obviously. There's one other thing. He has a star tattooed on his left hand. We actually had a great group of stuntmen here. Orchestrated and conducted by Andy Armstrong. Um, and you'll see a lot of them. It's the unsung heroes because, you know, you, you don't get too close to them. You focus on a hero. True. These people are fantastic, uh, and and they became like a family for Andrew. Yeah. So they can really get his body language, and he can learn their movements. And it's been that's actually one of my favorite shots of the movie. Favorite it's, shots of it's the beautiful. Movie. This whole sequence, actually, right here with Flash. This was, by the way, this was the scene that we used 
in the auditions for Flash. Um, and this is how we first uh, discovered or met Chris Zilka, uh, was in a scene, was in this scene uh, in Francine Maisler's office. I know it's the wrong time to go into the comedic side of life, but when we were doing these auditions, we had a bunch of actors in Francine Maisler's office. One of the guys, the actually wall. two of the guys, were... Well, we had a little act, we had an actor who was reading the Peter exactly. Parker part, who was this great guy. Um, Quite who, athletic. Yeah. But what comedic was about it, that they take this audition so seriously, and the walls in Francine are just made out of, uh, how do you call this? Uh, it's like uh, drywall. Drywall. And it started by cracking the wall. Yeah, to, so in to that... the point that after a few days of audition, she was like, what are you guys doing to me? We literally jacked the Flash <laughs> character through the wall. It was a so, lot of realism. This section of the movie, the montage here, is it's Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man. He's really motivated by vengeance in this sequence here, and his crime fighting is somewhat incidental. And he's just looking for this guy with the, the tattoo on his wrist. I thought it was a good uh, good motivation for him through this part of the film. I would say this this speaks to some of the themes here. This is another great example of, I think, more grounded kind of action. There's little bits like him throwing the guy against the wall who's actually on a wire there so he could flow a little bit further. And But this is, um, you know, dirty and gritty and, and I think a little bit more realistic in terms of fighting uh, language. And the running here and and the jumping and the climbing, it sort of emerges naturally and, and I think in a more organic way. But in terms of Peter hunting for the killer, there's competing truths. There's, there's three, I would say, major dramatic motivations in the film or characters that motivate the action in the film. There's, you know, obviously Kirk Connors and the lizard who's motivated, he wants to get his arm back. He doesn't want, he doesn't want to be a freak, he wants to be equal. Then there's Captain Stacy, whose uh, whose truth is law and order. He wants law and order. That's his primary objective. And then Peter, at the beginning of the film, is is, and during this section here, is motivated by vengeance. You know, he wants to to fill the his is that that need that thirst for for revenge, which is not, I would say, a pure motivation, it's sort of a darker motivation, but there's all these truths, all these characters um, are thrown, are on a collision course based on their own truths. But I think what, what Peter realizes that Captain Stacy doesn't realize until too late and the, the lizard and Kirk Connors don't, doesn't realize until way too late is that, you know, you can all have your own truth, but truth without compassion is not a virtue. And truth with compassion, that is where heroism comes into play. And I like that idea. I like that 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 collision course, because I think what, what happens, what makes good drama is uh, competing ideas of what's right or what's good. And that's, that's something that Tom Stoppard said. I've always really enjoyed that. I like the music here by James Horner. I think this is one of my favorite cues that James did. Um, it's one of the last cues that we saw that, or that I heard uh, James do. 
Here's some little exposition on, on the webs. That was a, a tedious shot to accomplish. We had to get the camera moving just right. We had to get the chopsticks <laughs> thrown in from the side. It was, it was about, and then Peter's body was split into two there so we could get all of his arms and limbs moving at uh, the same moment. This, of course, the famous mechanical web shooters, which uh, I hope the fanboys appreciate. And this is uh, a way, again, to dramatize Peter's intelligence, dramatize his engineering uh, capabilities. These shots here were some of the last shots that we finished. We just just got them under the under the gun. Um, we called these the handstand. This is a sequence, actually. I think Alvin was the first guy who came up with the the idea of him balancing on his fingertips. I really like that. I love Alvin. Have I mentioned that lately? How are you doing, Alvin? Are you out there? Here he goes. He's about to tip over. Big crane shot. There you go. I love this. Because of uh, shooting in 3D, we knew that we had such opportunities to create vertigo and use the 3D for that. And then if you see it in IMAX, forget it. It's, it's like, right. uh, this is just, if you didn't get it, it's a police radio attached to an iPad or something, or it's an iPhone. Or... And this scene, yes, and this, we, this was a scene that we shot on a rooftop garage at, on in the Sony, Sony lot. Yeah. And one of our stuntmen actually jumped, obviously, with, with, with a cable. Many, 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 many stories. It was spectacular and terrifying. And then obviously the city was dropped in afterwards. So here's our introduction to Dennis Leary. Uh, the, what I like about Dennis, the casting of Dennis, is Dennis is, um, he's playing the authority figure that he's made fun of his entire life, and he does it with such straightness. Dennis, as you know, is a hilarious comedian. He's a very, very funny man. But what's great about Dennis is he can just, he, he can turn that off, and he, he views himself very much as an actor, not not as a comedian. and and. It, it, he has a, a lot of weight and a lot of gravitas in this in this part, and I I love I love it. I was a little bit, you know, when we were talking about who to cast in this part, I was a little, you know, I was like, it didn't seem safe, and I really liked that idea, and I think he really really hit it out of the park. To the nerds. The weight of the bob on any pendulum has no effect on swing speed. It doesn't affect frequency, but it's totally a factor in momentum. This is, of course, the point of view shot that they use in the trailer, and a lot of CG here. I think that actually got an applause at the premiere. I'll take that. A great, a great music here. Great musical symphonic cue, undermined by the little phone call, which is basically the that's that's Peter Parker in a nutshell. He's a superhero, but he's got to get eggs for Aunt May. We love this moment because, on the one hand, it's the it's the realization of being Spider-Man, and then the phone rings, and it's Aunt May, and he's got to pick up eggs because he's Peter Parker. He's just a kid, and he still has all that stuff that we all had to deal with in life. That was one of the great things that Stan Lee put into the character from day one. Yeah. I wanted to put Spider-Man in, in a relatable, understandable context. I wanted to put him in a time and a place that we recognized, and... You know, cell phones are a part of all of our lives, and it would be 
disingenuous to think that he wouldn't have one. And and there's a certain convenience about it, but there's also it, it's it's sort of funny how you can all, all you can accomplish with a with a cell phone call. This scene is, I think, uh, the pinnacle of the quippy of the quippy Spider-Man, and this was uh, a really fun day to shoot. And you get that attitude. What I love about this too is you start to see that there's a kid in the suit. You know, he's not just some stunt man. There's this kid flopping around in there. There's an adolescent energy, and there's this real trickster quality that's coming to bear. And he is just he is just having the he's having the time of his life torturing this poor car thief. Just let me go. Is that a knife? Is that a real okay. knife? Yes, it's a real knife. I think he's really starting to get comfortable in the suit and he's really starting to have a good time and, and that the brooding energy of the of the vengeance is starting to wear off and he's just kind of you know, he's been doing this for a while now and I love that sense that you get. And it's a, a real great dimension to the character and all these jokes, I think it's really fun to watch the scene with an audience. They always seem to enjoy it. Um, and you can look at him. I love how he's walking around and so loose. Um, it's great to see Spider-Man in that way. That's how I always imagine him in the comics. And of course, there's a little bit of a dark quality here. Oof. This could have gotten a lot worse. Now hold still. <laughs> and this is the beginning of his antagonism of the, of the police force. And... Uh, you know, of course, Spider-Man thinks he's having a, just helping out, and you realize that uh, there's conflict to have here, and this is where um, this is where his life starts to get more complicated. This is one of the first action sequences that we did, and again, it's an example of of wanting to create uh, a world with more weight and more. You know physical gravity and and i'm trying to think of how this kid would actually move through the streets and run around and and hop through traffic and he hasn't mastered his webbing yet this scene was a real fun uh real fun few days to shoot we shot this at the beginning of the schedule and this from the bus on was near the very end of the of the shoot and i think it's some of the the coolest swinging in the movie because it's it's so real and it's so grounded It's an actual man in a suit swinging through the streets of New York. And I think that body language is something that you we use to inform even the later CG moments of the swing. So, this was shot in Los Angeles. The under, underneath the bridge was shot in New York. I tried to I wanted to shoot as much on location as possible because I think locations, it just gives you a sense of realism and space. What we have here is one of my favorite scenes in the in the movie. It's it's uh, Aunt May confronting Peter Parker. I just think like what would actually happen if your kid came home and he his face is all messed up and he wouldn't tell you what was going on. It'd be terrifying for a parent or for a guardian to experience. I love the way Sally plays this and the way Andrew plays it. There's such intensity, and it's so grounded. In in you know we have these big 3D cameras on a tiny little set. And it felt like we were making an independent movie, you know, because you just got two great actors and some some fantastic tension, and I think great things happen here. Peter, where do you go? Who does this to you? Please go to sleep, Aunt May. Please tell me. Aunt May, please, please, please go to sleep. I can't sleep. Don't you understand? I can't sleep. 
Now, before and very soon, you'll find one of our favorite, favorite casting in of many, many movies. You're talking about Dennis Leary. And this is the amusing and crazy and wonderful and nutty Dennis Leary. Dennis Leary. Also Freddy. I thought maybe you were talking about Freddy the Mouse, who was a very important cast member. Well, be careful with Peter. Something happens to Freddy. Not none of it real. None of it real. Okay. I don't know. The emails I got, they didn't believe us. I was there. I was there. They thought they got an extra uh-uh. leg somehow. Yep. They liked the three-legged Freddy before. Movie magic. And here's the great, great uh, Indian actor Irfan Khan. Uh, who's somebody that Mark had wanted from the very, very beginning to play Dr. Rafa. He's a huge actor in India who was given orders by his kids to be, to in, be the in the movie. Yeah. So he traveled a very long distance. And, He's an and amazing actor. He's a recurring character on in Treatment, uh, the HBO show, and, and uh, just brought incredible intensity and... We loved him. As it was then, I had nothing to do with that. And he has one goal in mind. Class act. Just to push the science forward regardless of the cost. You don't know or you don't want to know. I'll remind you what happened. This was, by the way, this was a another spectacular set built by Michael Riva. This was the Oscorp set. Um, the it, labs, incredible. Yeah, it's this kind of combination of futurism and old world, you know, books and and specimens and and, and great furniture. It, it just it, there's a richness to it and, a, and an element of fantasy to it that's completely Michael Riva. It's actually accessorized by Miss Pope, who is uh, incredible yeah. uh, in bringing life to the set. Uh, accessorizing it and creating She's the best. clues and ideas under the supervision of Michael. And just as, uh, you know, anecdotal, uh, her brother... Bill. Uh, it's the great Bill Pope, who's uh, one of cinematographer. the cinematographers in a business, who did two Spider-Man movies. Two and three. And uh, so it's, as we say, it's a family business. Where are you headed? Uh... Monday, B-track. Oh, it's Thursday. It's Thursday? What happened to your I don't think we auditioned uh, Dennis. No, we just decided we, we wanted We just decided we want Dennis. I mean, he's Dennis. You don't audition Yeah. Dennis. And there was like, do you think he'll do it? I don't know if he'll do it. But you know what? Dennis is playful. And he loved the character. He loved the character. And he was so much fun. Oh, it's apartment 2016. I didn't, I didn't write that part down. I don't know why. I, didn't. <laughs> I can't remember it. 2016. So this is Kirk Connors' transformation, a a scene from the comics that we all know. But I loved, you know, what's one of the fun things about private moments when you're filming them. With no dialogue, is again you can like like in the Spider Room, I can use music to help direct the actors and create a move and a setting and a feel. And during this sequence, we were playing Lou Reed's heroin, which has a great vibe and it's this this thrilling 
musical depiction of of addiction and that is really part of the story for for Kirk Connors we always looked at his relationship with the with the serum as really an addiction and his slow unhinging which I thought was really an important fun part of of that character now some more magical chemistry this is just this was just fun every time these two are together on screen it it uh, the movie I think comes alive in a very special way we got the suit gag here but um, <laughs> look at that look this is very early on in the schedule and everybody was it's right before Christmas and we were all having a really good time and it was a really sweet good-natured scene and and it's again it's something that I think is special in Spider-Man. There's these kind of there's a sweet, innocent heart at the center of it, and there's this kind of wonderful emotional simplicity to a scene like this that we can all relate to. You know, the flowers. This was this was fun. No, they're beautiful. I'm sorry. No, it's impressive. They actually held together very well. I'm gonna keep these. <laughs> you have your suit in there? My suit. It's for dinner. Are you gonna Are you gonna wear that? That's um. Hey, hon. Here's the great first showdown. You must be Peter. Dad, this is Peter. <laughs> She's so nervous. I love that. Hey, nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you. Dinner's ready. Here is a head of police with his beautiful one daughter. And this kid has bruises on his face, wearing this... Never knocked on the door. <laughs> and he's a policeman, so he knows he got in Something's and cut up. off a yep. weird... Something is up. Yeah. Uh, not a good beginning. No. This part is interesting because we made this hand... It was a physical prop. That's right. Uh, that worked incredibly well. Man, it was interesting. Matt's son is really young, and when Jackson saw it, he thought it was fascinating, yeah. and he wasn't like put off by it. No. On the contrary, it was like he was riveted. Wow. Yeah. He was riveted to it, which was great because we didn't want it to be frightening. Frightening. We wanted to be curious and That's right. interesting and, kind of, and believable and kind of beautiful. I mean, there's a magic to this moment, no, 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 you know, no. of creation. You have to stop him. He... I would, but I always lose him when he's on the bridge. I'll make sure Dr. Rother returns your call as soon as possible. That's what you need a great doctor for, to do what he's doing. The great Rishi Fund. I'm going to Holton Avenue across the river. I'm in a hurry. Okay, What's the name of this comic? I forgot. Oh, I forgot his name. Oh, he's great. Uh, we did sort of a longer riff here that just it was it went on too long, but it was he, he was actually the driver is actually hilarious. I think uh, he's a stand-up comedian. Yeah, I just can't remember his name. Now this is the beginning of the Branzino scene, the dinner table scene. I can never go into a restaurant when they walk in again. with the specials and say, and we got a Branzino. Yeah. And I that was real. Saying, I will say that. Cut it from the head. That then, was real, Branzino. Yeah, it was. Smelled good too. It did. Yeah. 
Well, they had to eat it. I can't imagine how many Branzino uh, Andrew actually ate that night. It's kind of an interesting moment here because Peter is not used to sit in a table with more than two and have meatballs. So this is like his this, first exposure this to... elegant family big dinner, completely alien to him. Just in case there is a question, the reason they have such a beautiful place, the wife is a very big lawyer. He is a civil servant, so obviously he couldn't afford this. But the wife, he married well, you know, it should happen to all of us. And they have this uh, wonderful apartment. There used to be actually some dialogue that made it clearer, but hey, you know, the movie would have been nine hours if we explained everything the way we wanted. That's right. Not nine, maybe six. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> no, there was actually a bit where one of the boys uh, did the... Um, Ah, that was great. Where he did the... Uh, the grace. Said, he grace. said grace. And he talked about potholes. It was fantastic. He, he blamed the potholes in New York for Who his having... Who wrote the potholes? You know, Alvin? Every, Alvin wrote the potholes. Yeah, Alvin yeah, Sargent originally yeah. wrote that. And the idea was he was admitting at the dinner table that he got in trouble at school because there were potholes on the way. That's how he was late. And his father, because he did such a good job of saying grace, his father forgave him at the dinner table. It was kind of great. Not protecting innocent people, Mr. Parker. Let's get some air, Peter. Dad, we need to talk. Yes, we do. And here we go. The moment. This is, yeah, I mean, on a more serious level, it's the moment in the movie where Captain Stacy, it really lands with Peter that there's another way of looking yeah. at what he's doing. And and Captain Stacy is talking to him about what he does, which is he takes care of the people of New York. He looks out for the innocent. And Peter has been so fixated on revenge that it really lands with him that maybe, maybe there's a different way to do things and that maybe he's not using his gift or his power the way he should be, which leads us into... Well, initially it leads us into this amazing love scene, but then into the, the first real action scene of the movie. I've been bitten. I've been bitten is also a uh, an Alvin Sargent line. Mm-hmm. Okay, 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 okay. I gotta tell you this one thing. I gotta tell you this one thing, and it's, it's about the, the vigilante and the car thief, all right? Oh, okay. Okay, no, forget that. I'm not gonna talk about that. I'm gonna talk. I'm gonna talk about me. Okay. What about you? It's impossible. I, I wish I could just. I can't. It's hard to say. Just say. Mm, I don't. Say. <sighs> Why? What? What? Abby, this was one of the scenes from the audition. Yeah. This was a scene that we used in the very, very beginning. That's where he had the fun of kissing of the kiss. That's right. some of the great girls in the business. <laughs> I remember asking him if he's tired, if he needs a stand-in. You were you were volunteering. I volunteered. That's very generous yeah, of you. Yeah, I volunteered. You're selfless. Because if you do it, that on is the screen, job of a producer. That yeah, if you do it on the screen, you cannot get in trouble at home. It's right. Just oh, absolutely. It's acting. It's all about the craft. 
Yeah. And here is nice and awkward moment. She's great. She's terrific, her mom. Now, the I'm in trouble thing is actually something that happened to Laura, to Laura Ziskin in real life when she met the great Alvin Sargent. And in her memory, it, it was just great to use this line because it's the realization that you kind of made a commitment. And you're falling in love, and there's no, and you're there's falling no stopping in love. you. Oh, I'm in trouble. So this is right out of... Real life. Laura's real life experience, uh, meeting someone that, you know, this, this relationship was wonderful. Action scenes, to me, you know, I want action scenes to be like any other scene in the movie. You want characters to be a little bit different at the beginning of the scene than they are at the end of the scene and and Peter Parker has been a little bit a little bit unsettled by his dinner with Captain Stacy he realizes he's he's forced into a, a mode of self-reflection and and then this scene comes along and and whereas the beginning of the scene he's motivated by vengeance he thinks he's 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 emboldened by his crime fighting but his crime fighting is is as I said, it's incidental. He's not really trying to help people. He's just trying to find somebody, trying, trying to find the killer of his uncle. So what happens here is, you know, there's all this peril. There's uh, a lizard hurtling cars off of a bridge, putting people in danger. Uh, there's flames and there's a, there's a child in peril. But what's really important about it is that Spider-Man learns that he's got to help other people. He learns that his powers have other possibilities and other obligations than just trying to find his uncle's killer. And so at the end of the scene, he his life has been has been changed. We shot this scene uh, in uh, about eight different pieces back in Falls Lake uh, at Universal Backlot. We shot it, part of it in New York, all the plates. We shot it on sound stages. It was, it was a, there's of course, C. Thomas Howell. We shot it all over the place. And, and it was really tricky to maintain the emotional through line of the, of the scene because that, despite all the action, the importance of it is this, this transformation, this emotional shift in motivation for, for Spider-Man. And one of the important things about the scene metaphorically, I remember when we were reading it, he's, Peter is saving this kid, and this kid is the same age as Peter was when he was left behind. And so there's this sort of, there's a subtextual power to the scene where he is, he's in some way saving himself, but he also realizes when he hands the, uh, the kid off, when he hands Jake off to his dad, he's reminded that he's never going to have that moment. And I think it's a mom. It's it's something where it's a, in a way, a, a baptism for the character for for Spider-Man, and it's a way for him to shed that that darkness. And when he comes out of it, he realizes, well, I may never be able to have that moment, but I can provide those moments for other people. And and like I said before, it's a story about a kid who goes out looking for his father and finds himself. And this is a big 
part of that scene. Yes, you can! For the longest time in the, in the music, we had a Tim Buckley cover. It's called Song of the Siren that was done by This Mortal Coil, which is, an old, this is a, a song from the old 4AD label. We couldn't get the rights to use it in the, in the movie, but it's a really beautiful song. Um, but I, I was really happy, really pleased with the way this scene turned out. And the idea of, of the mask emboldening the kid, I thought there was something ironic and, and beautiful about that. So it ended up being one of my, my more favorite scenes in the film. And here it is when he hands off his kid. When he hands off Jake to his father. And he's, I love this moment where he's watching. And you can see him emoting through the mask. And he's realizing that he's never going to have that moment. That that, that that moment was something that was taken from him. And you feel the weight of the emotional the sort of emotional weight of, of what it is to be without a father in this world. Spider-Man. Now he's shedding that and becoming the Spider-Man that we all know and love and fulfilling his, his destiny. Though I don't think his character arc is necessarily complete. Spider-Man never is, he's always becoming. And that is uh, one of the fun things about the character. This is, you know, this James Horner score here. James did such a spectacular job um, on this movie. And this is when, the, when the, the score begins to really come home and you, you hear the first strains of the hero's score because, again, it's the first time that Peter's turned a real corner. He's had a catharsis about what he's here to do. And so when he's flying away from the bridge, you really begin to feel the full um, impact of, of Horner's hero's theme. Uh, which I remember we went and listened. We, James um, Studio. He writes the music and, yeah. and does the sort of initial phases of, uh, of recording, just the temp recording out at a house in, uh, where is that? And that's where I ride my bike. It's out at the foot of Payuma. Uh, Calabasas. Calabasas. Yeah. At the foot of Payuma. I don't know why all these composers live in Calabasas. There are many of them in Calabasas. They are. Oh, Maybe they get why. together at night and they all... Yeah, exchange notes. So. See that? You never but see anyhow, them at the same time. The same. Uh, but I, he, I, he, I will never forget the first time yeah. that we heard the, the... The hero's theme. The hero theme. And it was... What was unique about it, it was touching. That's right. It, it, was... it was like immediately you knew that you're going to be dealing with the emotional side... Uh, which is again what the Peter Parker Spider-Man saga and we was wanted, always meant to right. be. And we wanted something we could. We wanted we could something hum, that we can hum and whistle. We couldn't stop. Remember, we drove away. Yeah, and we were all doing it. And, Do you and, want to sing it? Okay. I mean, I'm not. Where is my French horn? I will. Okay, so this is the bleacher scene. Which we love. We shot this at the same school as the basketball scene. Can't do that. Remember the football team was practicing there and they had never won a game or something? Because they, had, they were not a real football team. They, were. <laughs> <laughs> they all looked... Right. What, actually, one of the guys we were kidding was said, uh, did you... 
how's your team doing? He said, we never won a thing, but we are the cutest ones. That's right, right, right. And then I'm starting to look around, and I realized they all look too good. Right. They're uh, like 30. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and obviously, they were not a real football team. But This uh, was uh, just a great moment between these two. And it's a complicated scene. It, it was a long scene. These are hard scenes to shoot, not only because there's a lot of dialogue, because there's so much going on, because it's the burgeoning relationship, you know, and, and that awkward. Uh, by the way, what there was, we had to do here. There was paparazzi down in the end zone, um, which we had to block. But there's also, you know, in that scene is it's it's he's starting to talk about the lizard and he's talking about them. There was so much going on. It was and a very intense about his day. Commitment. Yeah, it was a very intense day. Not nice to snoop. Nice prop. It's not nice to snoop. I gave everyone the week off. This first time that Peter's suspicion is being staking him forward. Yeah. Starting to feel that yeah, this is how would a predator track there's something here that he needs to follow up on. Yeah, who better to talk to about a mysterious lizard than Dr. Connors? Suddenly, Dr. Connors is acting very strangely, and he's got weird striations on his neck. Got school stuff, biology profiles to do. So, because of the cold blood, would they react to sudden changes in temperatures? Well, you'd have to catch one first. Did you know? These props, by the way, are all built by Andy Siegel, who is our incredibly talented prop master. No, it's not yet classified. But it can be aggressive if threatened. Back to Horner. That's right. This process was pretty interesting of... Uh, coming up with, with his vision of the movie. Yeah. He totally loved the movie, and and he really he had a love uh, theme that, that hmm. came in great, and, and just a classy, you know, Spider-Man is an instant classic. It's something that has to withstand the test of time, and, and he wrote the kind of a score that uh, the great composers of the... 17th, 18th century probably would have produced. There's a handful of people like him out there that can can make it. So that's gross. This is a uh, you know the hybrid Freddy the Mouse meets lizard DNA. Yuck! That's a great scene. This is a great scene. We shot this downtown. Bye bye. Mr. Parker, why are you not in school? Got a free track. Okay. Well, I do not have a free track, so make your point quickly. Peter is trying to do the right thing. He's saying to himself, you know what? Maybe Gwen is right. Because she says to him at the bleachers, that's not your job. He said, maybe it is. And he's also, listen, you know, Captain Stacy has said to him, Spider-Man's not doing things the way I would do it. He's not being helpful. So here Peter's trying to play by the rules. 
but nobody will listen to him, so he's going to have to take it into his own hands. Let me ask you a question. Do I look like the mayor of Tokyo to you? Which is a great line and a, and a homage to uh, Godzilla. Cross-species genetics. He lost one arm. He's been trying to grow it back, but there was something imbalanced about the equation, and he has turned into a full lizard. He's using lizard DNA. He is dangerous, and he's planning something horrific. I know, I know. Okay. All right, I get it. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to go back to hanging out with the citizens of Tokyo, and I'm going to go back to protecting the citizens of this fine, fair city of ours. Sergeant Butler, would you please escort Mr. Parker back to school? Captain Stacy, I'm not, I'm not messing around. Just bring him in. Just call him in. You uh, have to call him in. Are they dancing? No. Just please <laughs> listen to me. But of course, Stacy has to take him seriously because he's a good cop. And there's something about this kid that isn't dismissible. So against his better judgment, he's got to check it out. What a hint. You think that's subtle enough? Believe it or not, these little things are CGI. And very expensive. They look so very expensive. They are very expensive. <laughs> well, this was, truth be told, a very uh, hotly debated topic as to whether or not we should have them. Mark wanted these little lizards, and they were very, very expensive. This is the set we called the onion because it looked like a massive onion from the outside, and it was the worst set to hang out in because it was incredibly loud. There was water everywhere. You could barely move the camera around. It was a really, really tricky set to shoot in, but uh, I think it was a great way to dramatize. I, I, I wanted. To, I was trying to think of when we were setting out to make this movie. I was trying to think of different ways that Spider-Man could use his webs, and and I thought, well, why wouldn't he just build a web? And I, I like this idea of him being at the center of of this all these spokes and and creating a spider web and using the spider web as a spider would use the spider web, which is to detect uh, prey. And this was again, uh, I like the way his uh, like the move his movement inside the suit here. I think is really great. And I ended up intercutting these two scenes just to to help uh, increase the pace and uh, of the film. So we're you know halfway through the film now, and we gotta you gotta keep uh, the metronome jamming. And there, of course, is the is the camera, which plays a role in about another minute and a half. This was uh, a scene that, that Mark had, had loved from the very, very early days with Jamie um, when Spider-Man was laying a trap for the lizard, which was the idea here, that he was using his webs and setting a trap and waiting for each of the strands to vibrate, just like a spider does when it traps its prey. Very, very cool image. Shot this on a stage in Culver City. I like this scene in 3D because the, the webs um, fill up the space in a, in a kind of cool way. And we used, um, we had these ropes that we eventually put, replaced in CG, which took a massive quantity of effort and time uh, to replace with these, with these, what are computer generated webs. Here's our lizard parade. All these little lizards being summoned by their king. There was a joke here that we, a one-liner that I that I liked, where um, that we didn't end up using for a variety of reasons. Where Peter is sort of talking back to the lizard and saying, "You know, you you kind of look like Goomba," 
but we we cut that out. I like this intensity though. I like this uh, close quarters battling and the tension. I always kind of referred this as I referred to this as the um, Saving Private Ryan moment, where you know that blade is coming towards the soldier's chest, and it's just the, the tension's building. I don't think I did it quite as well as they did, but you know that was the intention. You know, one of the reasons we shot this is we just hadn't seen, I wanted to create environments that we hadn't seen Spider-Man in before. And, and I thought the idea of Spider-Man underwater was kind of an interesting an interesting proposition, especially where the lizard is, is much more comfortable. Spider-Man is not exactly at the heights of his power uh, when he's submerged underwater. The web shooters don't work, he can't breathe, whereas the lizard can swim and doesn't seem to have a problem with those kinds of things. Beautiful shot there. That's a great image work shot of the lizard coming out of the water. If you're sitting in front of your television screen, you should rewind and look at that again. Spectacular the way he comes out of the water. One of the tricky things about this movie, I wanted to create a more grounded atmosphere and universe, and, and that's a tricky thing when you when you have a, a lizard, a nine-foot lizard rolling around the streets and, and being Spider-Man's main adversary or the main villain. When I was creating the lizard, when, I, when we were do, drawing up concepts, it was very important to me that the lizard could speak, that the lizard had some intellectual capability and, and, and ability to communicate. And, you know, there's a lot of, I think, a lot of fans that, that wanted the snout. But to me, I, uh, it was important that when he spoke, it made sense that, that he could speak biologically. The, the, the way a mouth is shaped, if it's a snout, it just wouldn't couldn't form sentences, couldn't form words, it just wouldn't work. And um, I was really committed to, to trying to create something that felt realistic in, in a very, let's say, surrealistic situation. And the other thing was I wanted, be, I wanted to be able to use Reese's performance in that, in that character. And, and, and so the face ended up being, uh, I, I pushed the face into a more humanistic dimension where you could see the eyes and you had the same facial cues that could indicate emotion then you know so so that the, the audience could engage with that character with some some level of understanding and sympathy we use the lizard we use the a variety of different techniques to integrate the lizard into the environment i mean for for a lot of times we had a, a massive stuntman named big john who did some of the work uh in the high school hallway then we had reese on stilts and reese on platforms to help generate the performance that the animators would then use to to um the, the reese would create a performance that the animators would use as a reference to uh animate the lizard's face and that was it was a really long and, and arduous process and we had a lot of very fantastic talented people uh at work behind the scenes to create that lizard It's a big decision in the movie to uh, Peter decides to come clean with Gwen that he's Spider-Man and and it's a it's an enormous decision she's the she's the one person in his life who he trusts and it's what it's it's one of the things that makes this relationship so unique and so different frankly from from the the Peter MJ relationship it's also very teenage like mm -hmm. And you see this moment on the bleachers when she asks him, who else knows? And he says, no, no, you're the only one. 
and she has this sheepy smile like there's nothing like being the only one to yeah. know such a deep secret. It's an incredibly intimate thing. And it's so suddenly the two of them share this thing, you know, which is just such a great metaphor for what it feels like to fall in love when you're young and nobody else knows us and nobody else understands. And, um, and of course, what's brilliant about, about the dynamic between them is that she loves Peter, you know, through it all. It's, it's not, she doesn't love him because he's Spider-Man. Um, if anything, that complicates it. She fell in love with him before she knew who he yeah, was. Yeah, and that's what's so special about it, and that's probably why he, he does unburden himself. Um, this scene is the first time that she realizes what she really got herself into. It's no longer fun and games. He's really injured. He made up his mind he's going to do what her father does, but in a different way. But the intentions are the same. And she has to make a big commitment here. I'm worried about my dad every day. Now I'm in love with this guy. And I know I cannot stop him from being who he is, like she wouldn't try and stop her father from being who he is. So it's she, a wonderful new bond at this stage of the movie. And she goes with him. And she makes the decision that you know what I'm going to do it. I love you, and I'm going to, I'm going to embrace this life with you, which will have consequences down the road, as we know. Actually, we have this, the makeup, the prosthesis on. On Connor's face, on Risa's face, is actually handmade. This is not CGI. V. Neil. Yeah. Uh, she's brilliant. She's brilliant. Oscar winner, multiple Oscar winner, V. Neil did all the makeup. They're like, at the end of the day, all in all, the 3,000 people that worked on That's this right. movie. That's right. It's almost hard to believe how many specialties and subspecialties it takes to put a movie like that not only this size but this kind of detail and artistry but the cgi and and physical effects uh, with a great john frazier who is the man to go to that's right and john's son and it's the last of the mohicans of these businesses who bring this magic to life and make it look easy one of the fun things, like I said before, when you're doing an action sequence, environment is an incredibly important part of it. And this movie was set in high school, and I wanted to, to create an action sequence at some point inside the high school. They did. There was a reference to it in the Ultimates. I think the Green Goblin comes in and, and really terrorizes Midtown Science in, in, in one of the earlier Ultimate Spider-Mans. And I love the idea of that location um, because it's a it's it's sort of. You know, it's a threat to Peter, and you realize Peter realizes in this moment that that the lizard has discovered his identity, and that there's a threat to those who are close to him. And and Peter Parker is actually a walking danger. I think it's an interesting thing for the character, and and plus, you know, it's a way to, um, you know, there's just fun environments, bathrooms, and chemistry labs, and and things to play around with. And this is another example of of Peter Parker's quips as he's. 
as he's, you know, battling the lizard and sort of taunting the lizard. Here's the thing. This is really what I wanted to say. What we have coming up here is, I think, and I can say it with some level of confidence, the best Stan Lee cameo in any, uh, in any movie yet. Uh, no, I've, I know people. some people like the Hugh Hefner uh, cameo in Iron Man. I don't know. I think that's great. I think we have a better one here. This was a fun scene to shoot. We did a reference of it, and then it was all created in CG. So this was the, a, a great, a great sequence. I think that Drome Chen and Randy Cook and Randy and Dave, our, our lead animators, did a really fantastic job in this sequence. And and I love the the physical possibilities of lizard versus spider. There's a lot of fun to play here. This is just amazing CG. And obviously the whole idea, growing the arm and so on, we wanted to find a way to, to manifest the growth. So here comes the tail, the tail grows back, uh, very much like what he's trying to do with his arm, and that explains why his cross species genetic is with a lizard. That's right. That the nature actually can do it. That's right. And here you see a wonderful use of of, uh, of the webbing. Cocooning, as, as a, the, yeah. Like in nature. Yeah. I'm gonna throw you out the window now. So Gwen gets tossed out the window here. This is, of course, a little bit of a nod to the comic book mythology and the possible future of Gwen Stacy's character. I'll just leave it at that. Been a bad lizard. I wanted to create a universe that could sustain more scrutiny, that that where there was doorways to different stories and acknowledgments of of a universe that was complicated enough to anticipate future movies. You know, I like the idea of, of backstories that are hinted at but not fully revealed. There's something that I think J.R.R. Tolkien called uh, distant mountains when he was writing the Lord of the Rings books. He he would sort of refer to, to the stories of, of, of mountain ranges off in the distance and it helps create a dimension to the universe that that makes things feel a little bit more i think a little bit more real that that these people are actually operating in a, in a world with rules and with people that are off in different parts of the world and i think that's important when you're trying to create a new mythology all those details are really really important i think certainly the mystery of peter parker's parents is something that's the long shadow that's cast over his life and we didn't solve that in this movie but I wanted, I wanted people to remember and remember that it was really a big part of Peter Parker's motivation initially, and that's going to play out over future movies if the audience so demands. As you can see, the movie has a quite a great look, uh, and that's tribute to, to John. John Schwartzman. Uh, our DP uh, that was gutsy and forward-thinking and agreed to be the first man to shoot, uh, support shoot a movie us in 3D and, and shoot and, the movie in 3D and and he's and, such a confident character. He's got such incredible experience and he's 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 really really bold. You know, he's not afraid to try anything and and we needed that. We needed somebody who wasn't afraid of all this new technology and amazing energy. 
the, he's like the energizer bunny. He never sits. He's willing to try anything and everything. And he shaves his legs. And shaves his legs, yeah. Uh, by the way, Matt shaves his legs too. Uh, you know, I've, I've been known to race a bicycle. But um, it, it was fun to have uh, John around because it's, it takes a lot of energy uh, to adapt a new art form, yeah. uh, a new camera. John never sits uh, down, by the way. It, it, which is it's amazing. Never, like, ever sits down, won't. We'll be in awe how, how much energy this man will have. Yeah, he's the and, greatest. And his vision to... It's just a stunner, and it's great. It's great for him to to be able to to work with uh, with Mark and Mark working gave, with him. It gave Mark a lot of comfort and a lot of confidence to be with somebody who was such a such a professional. And Mark is a terrific visualist, and 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 John's job was to bring out, make it happen. This was a scene, um, you know. Uh, kudos to to Vic Armstrong. Um, yeah. With the with the, the this this SWAT scene um, was something that 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 Vic and Mark uh, worked very closely on with with some some of the second unit guys and uh, an important moment an important moment in the story of the lizard. Hmm. Poor lizard. I always feel badly when they pick on him. It's like a Frankenstein thing. Uh, and here is one of the, the big themes of the movie. I want everybody to be like me. Uh, and, and now Peter doesn't have a choice. He, he, has, to, he has to stop him uh, before he turns all of us into lizards. Because um, part of his ideology was to change himself, That's right. and unfortunately, it didn't work exactly according to plan, like science. So why not change everybody else? Why not change everybody else? Yeah, this was at Universal in the back lot. Again, uh, it's Michael Riva turned the Universal lot into. New York. It, you couldn't tell the difference. That's right. Um, I remember bringing some people uh, one evening, and they're just blown away. Yeah. And, and the funny part is that one of the members of my family were trying to buy a hot dog. A real uh, hot dog. Real. I know all those stores along yeah. there, right? And 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 the guy just smiled. They said, "I can't. These are props." Right. It's not a real uh, hot dog. It's plastic. It, it's really funny too, because it's it's real. It's a, he had shot here a, a bunch of jokes. There was a, a girl who gave Peter his phone, who gave Spider-Man yeah. the phone. The goth girl, her phone, when, when Peter called Gwen, it lit up and it said goth, did it say goth girl or goth princess or something? Uh, goddess of death. Goddess of death. And yeah. so Gwen says, who's the goddess of death? But we just didn't need it in the movie. Here, here is, you know, the movie is coming to this great crescendo. The city is in trouble. 
Peter realizes, uh, obviously one of, one of the great motivations here is his need to get closer uh, to, well, and, and it, and it to ra- Connors, yeah. is, is created Connors as a lizard. And the and practical he, problem, though, in this scene, which is, I, I think, really fascinating, is one of the things from the very beginning that Mark said was, you know, I want this movie to live in, in the real world, in, in a very practical world. So if you apply that lens, then where are Peter's, where is he shooting his webs? What's he sticking to? You can't just shoot webs up in the, in the sky. Um, he's got to be shooting webs onto buildings. Yeah. Well, the buildings are on the side. So it changes the way Peter gets, you know, uh, transports himself, or Spider-Man transports himself. He can't just fly through the city. Um, and so it created a real plot opportunity, and it's what this whole sequence yeah. becomes about, that Peter's not going to get there in time because of the limitations of physics and gravity and all these things that are real. So he's going to need help. He's going to need the help of the city. And that's what that's what's going to happen in this crane sequence coming up, um, is that he's going to get that kind of support, which will enable him to get to Oscorp and save the day. Freeze! Down on the ground. Put your hands behind your head. Now! Stacy realizes this kid that was at his dinner table is in fact Spider-Man. And your daughter's there right now. And he chooses to believe in him. It all makes sense to him now. Yeah. The dinner, the the way he looked, the, the way he was beat up, coming to the police station. And he realized that, that yeah. the kid is not just nuts. That that there was knowledge and 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 it's more complicated than he may have seen it. And, and they both they, they both love Gwen, and, and they know that Gwen is there, and they want to save her. And there's that great Horner. This is such a great James Horner sequence. You know, he gave you a taste of the hero's theme there where he reaches for the mask. And it's gonna, the, the score is going to f- come fully into its own um, as Peter swings towards Oscorp because he's now in, in real, complete hero mode. This is, I love this sequence because it's, you know, this is Gwen Stacy. She's no shrinking violet. She's, she's going to do whatever she has to do. Peter has told her to back off and to get out of there. She won't have it. You know, Gwen's going to, Gwen is his partner and his accomplice. And uh, she's going to do everything she can to stop Connors as well. He was begging her to get out of there. Yeah. Because Elisa is coming. And she felt, no, first she has to empty the place, tell everybody, get out. And then if she doesn't get the antidote on time, then it's all lost. And, and I'm sure in the back of her mind, if she doesn't get the antidote, who knows what the lizard will do to her boyfriend. It's clearly that he's stronger. So, scary stuff, but she's feisty.
Antidote complete. Oh, here we go. He's wounded, and you realize how far he has to travel. And he probably won't make it. We're now getting the latest details. This is just coming in. The New York Police Department has called for a citywide evacuation. Everything south of 54th Street. If you are south of 54th Street, you have to move out of the area immediately. Just beautiful. Again, Jerome Chan and his teams, teams, plural, very plural. Yeah, very. Uh, and here's C. Thomas Howell, the father of, uh, of the boy on the bridge. And he's, he's going to pay back what Spider-Man did for him. Get him on the phone for me. Boom. Boom. Not easy to do it, especially injured. But he has to get there. You see how the city is evacuating. That's a hero moment, and he is one. Getting some overtime. You get some overtime. All tower cranes on six. Swing your jib arms over the avenue. He is a. What is Charlie? No, I haven't figured out the word. He is always stirring the pot. This, okay, so this is one of the first sequences that I had conjured up. It was a way to, one of the, I, I was sitting in, in, in uh, on the streets of New York and I was trying to think if I were Spider-Man, how would I swing through the city? And and it's really difficult to imagine how you swing through the city because there's no, there's not really readily available pick points to connect your web to. There's tops of buildings, but then you start to move. If you, I was like, well, how would I move? And if I did that, and that's where that pendulum swing, it's what we call the pendulum swing. Um, develop because you can't it's it's much more difficult to just sort of swing the iconic spider-man swings without um, having a place to swing from and so I was like well if there are cranes on the street then I could do that great spider-man swing and so this sequence came from the idea of of figuring out well just came from a way to draw a way for us to dramatize that big iconic uh, wish fulfillment swing and and I wanted to give the I also combine it with the idea that there's this uh, you know the city is coming to Spider-Man's aid and this is a way to to do that I, I love the music in this sequence as well James I think really he did a fantastic piece of work here I wanted the camera to go along with Spider-Man here. I wanted us to feel what it was like to swing with, with Spider-Man. I like the idea. I like point of view is a really important thing when you're trying to figure out how to shoot a scene. And I wanted to get the camera as close to Spider-Man as possible. And, and you, we, we added a little bit of, of camera shake and to accentuate the turbulence, to make it feel like there was a, a real thrust in that character. And, this is a sequence that we started we started creating actually before we started shooting. It took probably about a year and a half to, to complete fully because it was almost entirely computer generated. And even though we had very significant physical reference points that we had generated on the motion capture stage and 
through various methods. Um, it was a, a really a fantastic example of, I think, how computer-generated imagery can create realistic sequences now. It's really a pretty incredible thing. And the way you can move the camera and the way the camera can become, can really help emphasize that sense of velocity and vertigo is a, a pretty extraordinary development. This movie actually was born for 3D. Right. Spider-Man, because of his flight and movement and his villains in New York City as a character, enjoys a special special responsibility, actually, to, to be brought to life in 3D. Yeah. This sequence, we spent a lot of time pre-visualizing him. This one of my favorite shots in the movie that we did fairly late in the game. This was just fun to imagine the the, the battling titans on on a very precarious uh, location, the rooftop of Oscorp. It's something that was really fun to mess around with, and and I think this was it was a sequence like when I, my my previous team led by Louise and and, and Gavin from Proof. It was a really great part of the process because and it's when you're doing previous what previous is is sort of a three dimensional storyboards it allows you to experiment and do you know there's a lot of trial and error and and you can move the camera around and 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 really mess around without too much consequence and it helps you develop these i think uh more nuanced and complicated action sequences i think it's important to acknowledge what Spider-Man is after, and his first and primary motivation is to get to that Ganali device up at the top of the building, and and the lizard wants to stop him, and it's really that simple, and and all the action emerges from those competing desires. We shot some physical references. Vic Armstrong, our second unit and action director, shot a lot of references, many of which we used. But again, this is a sequence that was almost entirely done in CG, but again, very much based in moments of physical reality that we, we had shot as reference. He's not alone. I always love this, where he cocks, it's like a Western. You know, you hear the shotgun cock in the background. And the cavalry has arrived. Liquid nitrogen. This is liquid nitrogen as a way to stop a lizard was uh, an idea that came from George, our production coordinator. I was trying to think of a way to to sort of add to raise the stakes or to, to make Peter extra. I needed some new device, some new method to add into the equation in order to stop the lizard. And George, our our uh, production coordinator, you know, slapped a, an issue of Spider-Man on the desk where. And I had read this, I just hadn't thought about it, where they used liquid nitrogen to stop the lizard, because lizards, as you know, are cold-blooded, and, and when they are frozen there, they are they become slower. And that is something that we try to dramatize here. Now they work together, isn't it awesome? Yep. The Ganali device. Buy one at a store near you. Again, takes takes tremendous CGI, tremendous effort uh, to capture all this on stage. 
love this image. I think what was important to me in this sequence was to resolve it in a way that felt different. And I kept on trying to find the moment in this scene that was surprising. And really what it was to me was the moment that, the moment that was surprising that I think is unexpected is when Kirk Connors saves Peter Parker at the end. Because what Peter does is, you know, one of, one of Peter's powers, one of Peter's uh, abilities is not just you know, stopping people and, and his strength. It's his heart and it's his, his ability to inspire people and to change their behavior. And that happens in, to the kid in the car, it happens with the cranes, and it happens to, to Kirk Connors. You know, Spider-Man is an example. And, and that's what's dramatized in the scene. And the action, the, you know, the, the, the spectacle of it, the collapsing tower, which I think is a really great moment, is all uh, designed to serve another moment. And that's the idea that, that Peter, again, that Peter Parker is an example that he can inspire people to become better. And, and that is uh, one of the great hidden and often overseen powers uh, and influences of Spider-Man. Here comes Dennis Leary's death scene. Dennis was, I think, uh, kind of nervous about dying. Uh, and we talked a lot about it beforehand, but I think he did a fantastic job. Look at me, you need to stay with me. Help's on the way, okay? You need to, you need to be gone when they, when they get here, okay? I'm not going anywhere. Dennis, again, really a fantastic dramatic actor. And I think they, they, there's a great connection here. And I remember Dennis coming to me between takes and saying, that kid Garfield is unbelievable. He could feel, after Dennis had died and his eyes were closed, uh, he said he could feel Andrew's tears falling on his hand. And he said, I'll never forget that moment. I mean, Sometimes people closest to you. it's it's a testament to Andrew's commitment to to the character. There was always some depth, there's always some range. And, and I think people really, really have responded to, to Andrew's performance in a way that should serve him well as, as, the, as time goes by. I think they'll realize that his performance in this movie is, is uh, pretty iconic. And, and, and kind of a game changer. Oh. What we have coming up here is, is also one of my favorite scenes. I have a lot of favorite scenes, as you can tell, but it's, a simple, it's one of my favorite moments, I'll put it that way. It's when Peter Parker comes home, he's all messed up, Aunt May sees him and is, uh, I think, kind of rightfully mortified. And he comes home and he hands her the eggs. And I think that's a moment, it's a very, a very important moment for Peter Parker where he's, and it's the thing that we all love about Spider-Man is he's just stopped the, the villain, he's saved the city, and he's managed to, to do his chores as well. And, uh, and we realize that Peter Parker's a good kid after all. I love this moment. This this uh, building is all CG, and and 
think it was a pretty spectacular effort by the the team at SPI, led by Jerome Chen, um, at creating realistic environments. They did. SBI does a fantastic job, not just with creatures, but with environments as well. And that's a that's a very important part of the the the, the process when you're trying to create a world that feels grounded and realistic. And Drum um, is really really fantastic at that. Knowing that the alleged mastermind of this terror plot, Dr. Curtis Connors, is behind bars, we've got John Niles. Schwartzman was really instrumental. We talked a lot about um, what terms like gritty and realistic meant with Schwartzman, and, and he was very keen to engage with a lot of handheld cameras and, and use of practical lights to create a, a sensation that, that, you know, there's this enhanced naturalism, and, but it's it just it's about trying to create environments that you recognize. And you're not trying. I, I wanted to stay away from stylizing the universe. I didn't want it to feel like we were recreating panels from the comic books. I wanted us to feel like we were observing um, and getting an insight and being a little bit of like kind of like voyeurs into this world. And I wanted. I didn't want the camera work to interfere in that. I wanted to. to I wanted us to sort of feel invisible. I wanted the director, the hand of the director, to be uh, invisible. And, and we had a great team that that supported that idea. This is a shot in Koreatown. This is also where I shot my video for Helena for My Chemical Romance, which also featured a lot of umbrellas. Uh, it's a motif. What can I say? I like umbrellas. I have an umbrella fetish. And there's, this is, I think, the second or third day of shooting, and I thought, Emma just looks beautiful here. And so, so peaceful and sad. It's a really great moment. This scene was written by the wonderful Alvin Sargent, fairly late in the writing process and I think it's this is where you can see Andrew's performance has become much more focused his physicality has become much more focused uh, he's not moving around nearly as much as he was and I think that there's a level of control and you sense that this kid has become a man in the last uh, couple hours and she's heartbroken by it she's heartbroken by his austerity this is a tough scene to suit. There was, you know, a lot of rain going on in the background and neighbors looking on from afar and, and paparazzi down the street. And these kids had to go to a very real, very deep emotional place. And that's hard when there's all that distraction around. And I think, uh, I think we haven't seen Emma Stone do a scene like this before. And she is just fantastic. And I think everybody's known how funny she is and how good of an actress she is. But, but I think there's an emotional dimension to this character that we haven't seen her do before, and, and I think she's just fantastic. I was really, really lucky to get to work with Andrew and Emma in this film because I think they're actors that are really wonderful, very generous, and, and are going to be great contributors to cinema in the, in the coming years. I love that they're young. I love that we get to watch their whole careers develop. It's, pretty, it's a pretty fun thing to imagine. I love this look and that little tear stain on his cheek. If you look down that shot right there at, the, at all the different uh, the row houses, that was a real pain in the ass. There was somebody who lived in one of those houses who insisted on coming out and being in the shot every time we were rolling. And, and there was someone down there who was determined to blow the shot. And I think actually in one of the shots you can see a person. 
I spent a lot of my life thinking about women when I was young and the how frustrating and mysterious and thrilling and exhilarating they are. And it's just something I've always been drawn to on screen. And I think, I think that I always am taken by the hope that romance on screen, that, that I kind of wish that romance in life was like romance on screen. And so it's something that I always find myself exploring or, or interested in and attracted to. And I don't know if I want to figure out why that is. I kind of like that mystery. But for whatever reason, I'm drawn to it. And I think it's something that we can all identify with. Peter Parker. Particularly, you know, young love. Uh, and that that moment where you, you lose your innocence. It's a big moment in everybody's life. And, and it's... When you're a teenager, it's every emotion is just downright apocalyptic. And Spider-Man, the Spider-Man universe is just a great way to explore those <laughs> apocalyptic emotions Peter, in an interesting and fun way. How do you, do, do you really just put what happened behind you? Do you, do you really recommit to each other after such trauma to both of them? There's a few lines. I, I was thinking about this today. I, I, there was a line that Alvin Sargent wrote in a scene that got cut. He wrote this line, Get to work, Peter. Be creative. We must be greater than what we suffer. And I kind of wish I would have added it into this Uncle Ben speech at the end um, because it's a simple piece of wisdom. It's an aphorism that I, that I think about often that, that every once in a while when you're having a tough day kind of helps you along. But maybe somewhere else down the road I'll be able to use that line. Get to work. Be creative. We must be greater than what we suffer. But I think it would have made sense coming from Uncle Ben. But I do quite like this message, some of which uh, Andrew came up with on his own. I mean, he had written this thing uh, to listen to while, while he was listening to that message from Uncle Ben. He had some words that he asked the sound man to, to pump through his uh, phone. And, and Andrew had come up with something really quite... Uh, beautiful. He's a, he's a, Andrew's a very talented uh, uh, writer and conceiver of ideas. He was a great collaborator on the movie. Here it is. This is a speech. Um, this Who Am I speech is a... I have to acknowledge my uh, high school English teacher, Mr. Keyes, who gave me this very same lecture when I was a 12th grader at Madison West High School. This is... Uh, something that he, he always believed in. You know, there's 10 stories in all of fiction. You hear that a lot when you're in college. But he said, no, that's not true. There's only one. Who am I? I love that idea, and it's really at the heart of, of why I felt emboldened and, and why I felt able to reboot uh, the movie um, because we do tell the same stories over and over again, and it's the inflections and the, the changes in themes that, that give it its... Uh, specificity and power, but really at the end of the day, we're always exploring the same thing. Who am I? How's that for pretentious? You like that? Here we go. This is the, this was the very last shot we finished in the movie. We had a lot of uh, champagne the minute we finaled this shot. This is a way to get that 3D sensation. Hurtling through the air. Great score by James Horner. And there's the moon. 
You gotta love the moon. There's China balls. <laughs> there's an alley. There's some smoke. And there's Spider-Man coming at you. Some pigeons. That great iconic frame from the comics. Uh, well, it was fun seeing this movie again, believe it or not. I like that. I really like it. Good seeing and, you again, huh? And, and I have to say that one of the great things happened to me on this movie is my good partner for 12 years as head of the studio became my partner in making these movies. Yeah, well, and, and it's been a privilege. Well, the, and fun. The man who studied at your at your feet got and, to sit next to you, and, and that was and an honor. And we just—I have to say—between Mark and Matt and the actors, uh, the set was a place you wanted to spend time on. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great privilege to be able to make this movie in Los Angeles, uh, providing all this employment. Uh, to so many people in LA and I hope some officials from the state of California will be watching it too. Guys, you have to match New York, Vancouver, thousands of people. We're loading up the trucks, guys. And through them, thousands of people more. Uh, it's so important for us, for the city, for the state, uh, help us keep these kind of movies here. Uh, it brings families, gives them stability. That's it. That's my soapbox. I like it. I like it. So this is just a, a an extra scene. I'm not going to give you any answers, so you're going to be frustrated if you're looking for answers in this commentary. Kirk Connors is in a very desperate place here. But notice the lights flashing. Actually, I invite your scrutiny. Go online, discuss. What are your ideas? Who do you think this is? Is it Norman Osborn? Is it Electro? Is it some secondary Oscorp lackey? I don't know. Or maybe it's a figment of Connor's imagination. You should leave him alone. Well, not likely. It's really interesting how he grew up to care for this boy. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you, you for listening, and uh, we'll see you in May of 14. It's very important to acknowledge uh, two of our my really wonderful allies and collaborators in the film, and that's uh, Laura Ziskin, my great friend and producer who passed away uh, right after we completed shooting, and, and then... John Michael Riva, our production designer, who passed away just before the movie premiered. And these people who were great, great examples of the wonderful power of the human spirit. I, I really, I miss them every day and they were such huge contributors to the film. You can see them everywhere and feel them everywhere. And, and I really wanna reach out to them in the universe and give them a hug and thank them. All right, that's my that's my gig. I hope you enjoyed this crazy commentary courtesy of all your crazy friends here, Avi, Matt, and Mark. Take care, homies. Mm -hmm.